and welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 45, recorded on March 18th, 2018. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. It's good to be connected again and have you back. And we start out this week's episode with a big new fancy GNOME release, version 3.28. Yes, which you have celebrated by installing Plasma yet again on some more machines. So, uh, <laughs> you caught that, huh? <laughs> yeah, you're not kind of very invested in this anymore, are you? Well, I did go ahead and kick the tires. I downloaded uh, the latest OpenSUSE tumbleweed that uh, is an ISO pre-spun with GNOME 3.2.8 and uh, gave it a go for a few minutes. It looks really nice. There's a couple of features in here that I appreciate. Uh, some real nice improvements to the way GNOME handles Thunderbolt 3, some improvements to the file manager that I like a lot. But overall, it's just another solid, steady release. It didn't get me to switch back, I'd say. But if I was a current GNOME user, I'd be pretty excited about 3.28. Yeah, the feature that jumped out at me is um, Boxes, the the new ability to download ISOs directly from that. So Boxes is their VM system, and you can install and test different Linux distros with one click now, which is pretty sweet. Yeah, they've also enabled some drag-and-drop file support for certain virtual machines, so you can send files for the virtual machines by dragging it in the window. But that whole, like, download the ISO automatically feature probably is the number one thing I want to try with the OpenSUSE Tumbleweed uh, install that I haven't done yet. In total, GNOME.38 incorporates 25,832 changes that were made by approximately 838 different contributors. It's pretty big. There's all kinds of updates throughout the system from the calendars app to the media playback support. Many of these changes are in photos. It has a new import from device feature, which makes it easy to add photos to your collection from removable media, like an SD card or a USB drive, or maybe even your camera. This feature automatically detects devices that contain new images, and it also allows organizing new images into albums as they're imported. There's lots of other little nice things in photos too, like new editing tools for shadows and highlights, as well as just general performance improvements. These tools, like videos, which now supports MJPEGs, music, which now has better reorder support and playlists, and games, the application for retro console arcade games, all have also gotten new features. Yeah, and they are still doubling down on the touchscreen stuff, aren't they? The on-screen keyboard's been rewritten and is looking pretty nice. Yeah, it seems very usable. It's not going to blow you away with anything different, but it's straightforward. Oh, I guess also we should mention there's a new application, Usage. This is a new application that's a bit of a technology preview now, but the initial version's pretty functional with what it does have, which includes features for examining your CPU and memory consumption, and it'll also highlight problem areas, make it easy to quickly identify what process is consuming a ton of resources without having to understand how to sort processes and all of that. But my favorite feature is it also has a disk usage examiner. I almost always install a tool to do this, a graphical tool to just go through my disk and tell me what Dropbox folder is ridiculous or my downloads folder is huge, and it now has that built into usage. Yeah, but I do wonder, how is this different from GNOME System Monitor that we've had for years? I think besides using sort of new technology to render the graphs and all of that, it's simpler. It's more designed for human beings. It's less of PS in a GTK app and more of a friendly front-end user tool. Fair enough. Well, I've just used that for years and never had any problems with it, but I do look forward to checking this out. (laughs) I do think it looks decent, but I also don't have any problems with the current tool. You get both. They're not taking away GNOME System Monitor. Yeah, fair enough. So there's been another release this week, 
Firefox 59, which is not as big a release as 58, but it still has some new features, doesn't it? This is a big release for me. It's the one that made me stick with Firefox. When 57 came out, I started looking ahead a little bit at the nightly builds, and I saw what was coming down the pipe for 59, and I stayed. First of all, it's way faster than 57 or 58 for my personal usage. And my favorite feature, if you want it, it now has client-side decoration support, which you can turn on or off in the customized appearance area. Yeah, it's mostly just small changes this time around. But one interesting thing that have changed is for private browsing mode, where they are now removing the full path from referrers. So that will prevent cross-site tracking, which is good. Yeah, and if you're on one of those distributions that's using an ESR version of Firefox, there's now an easier way to get the absolute latest version, version 59, as a snap. Yeah, I was quite surprised to learn that Firefox is now available as a snap. It seems like something that would have been available for quite a long time, but it comes at the same time as Chromium as well, so now you can get both browsers as snaps. These two snaps, Firefox and Chromium, will be more valuable as... LTS releases and stable distributions age, so say three years from now. It's going to be really great that you might be able to have an ESR version of Firefox as provided by your distribution's repository, and then when you need to test something, perhaps for work or you just like the newer browser, you can go grab the snap, and it won't mess with your local distro's packages at all. You can have both. Yeah, and it's kind of another step towards everything being a snap, isn't it? We had kind of said at the beginning of the year and end of last year that this is going to be the year of snaps, and it seems to be coming true. Pretty much all the major applications now are available that way. Snaps, flat packs, either way, I'm a happy camper. And I would just really love to see down the road Google step up and publish a snap directly themselves of Google Chrome. You know, the one that can play like Netflix and stuff like that. That would just be useful. I don't know if I'd actually ever use these snaps myself. I tend to run distributions that just have current packages. But I know there's a group of users out there, especially on the corporate desktop, they're going to use the heck out of these. Yeah, I think Chrome makes a lot of sense as a snap because with it being proprietary, the distributions can't distribute it. So there's always going to have to be a third party way of installing it. And Snap is just so trivial to install that you think that they would do that. Now you would imagine that Canonical have been working with Google on that. And there's probably some stuff going on behind the scenes. So it wouldn't surprise me if we had Chrome very soon. But uh, we'll have to see on that one. Speaking of making your web browser run a bit faster, good news for those of you that are crazy enough to run one on a Raspberry Pi, the 3B just got a little bit faster. Yeah, the 3B Plus is now available. The 3B is still available for people who have designed it into products or whatever, but anyone who's using it as a desktop or just a general tinkering board will definitely be wanting to buy this new one because it's got much faster network, both Ethernet and Wi-Fi, and it's got a slightly faster clock speed, improved boot from USB and Pixie booting, improved thermal management. It's just generally an improvement over the 3B. This is really the Raspberry Pi I've been waiting for. So yeah, like Joe said, there's a slight increase. It's a 200 megahertz increase in peak CPU frequency. But 
the big improvement here is the networking. It's three times the wired and wireless network throughput than the previous models, and it now has a better ability to sustain those high periods of throughput for longer periods of time. There's a couple of things at play here. There's now a gigabit Ethernet adapter on this board, with the caveat that they're quite upfront about. It is running over a USB 2 bus. That's why you're just seeing a 3x improvement in speed, but it's pretty great. And one of the ways they're getting improvement on the network throughput and on the processor is we now have thermal plating on there. The Broadcom chip has a thermal spreader on it, and the Wi-Fi chipset is encapsulated under a metal shield that's embossed rather fancy with the Raspberry Pi logo, which allows them to certify the entire board as a radio module under the FCC rules which will significantly reduce the cost of conformance testing for Raspberry Pi-based products, products that have a Raspberry Pi built in them. That's a big deal right there. So not only are we getting better thermals, but we also have easier certification for radio-type workloads for the Raspberry Pi. Yeah, and we didn't mention that the price hasn't changed either. It's still the $35 price, which makes it a very attractive proposition to build into other devices, doesn't it? Because if they've paid for the certification for you already, and it's only $35 for the board, it's kind of a no-brainer at that point if you're building a product that needs an onboard in it. Another nod to the Raspberry Pi 3B Plus getting ready for more different types of industrial workloads is if you get the right hat, the sucker now supports power over Ethernet. That's going to open up to a wide range of use cases. Yeah, that hat isn't actually available yet, but it will be shortly, apparently. And yeah, that does seem very useful to not have to have a power supply. You can have network and power over one cable, which makes it really easy to put in awkward places. So yeah, it's good to see that as well. Just a quick public service announcement in case you end up picking up the 3B+. Plus. They note that it uses more power. So make sure you get a high quality 2.5 amp power supply and don't run it on something that can't deliver that or else you're going to have the crashes. Yeah, they've kind of crept that power demand up, haven't they, with each new release, and this one is the most power-hungry so far. And one criticism that I've seen is that it's still only got one gigabyte of RAM. Now, that is a limitation of the chipset, unfortunately, so until they make a major revision there, it's going to be stuck with one gigabyte of RAM, which kind of these days feels a little bit not enough, doesn't it? Ah, jeez, Joe. Back in my day, I had 16 megs of RAM, and I was happy. Yeah, but this is 2018, and, you know, even running a server or something, unless you want to be swapping out all the time, you're going to need more than one gig of RAM, really. Ah, dang it, Joe. Get off my lawn. (laughs) But I don't know whether I'm going to buy one or not, because I've got a three, and that, I don't use it that much, but one of the reasons that I don't use it very much is this network bottleneck. And as they allude to here, that... It's not only a bottleneck of uh, 30-odd megabits per second or whatever over wireless. It's the fact that it can't continuously deliver that much throughput because it just kind of dies and then comes back, dies and then comes back as it gets hot or something. And now they've addressed that problem as well as making it faster. It suddenly makes it much more useful to me. But it's not even that much money, but it's just more the clutter of it, really, because I'll end up buying it and then just using it for a while and then not using it. So... I don't know. I think I'll probably end up with one eventually. But if they rev the RAM, I think that's when I would be probably looking to buy another one. But for now, I'm not going to buy one anytime soon. What about you? 
You know, I have been tempted recently to use the open source project Crankshaft and make a car pewter out of the Raspberry Pi. And now that there's one that's just slightly faster, I was already tempted. And now that it's just a little bit faster, I'm even more a little bit tempted. So I might actually pull the trigger. I do have the same problem that you have. I've got a Raspberry Pi right across the table from me that I haven't used in a solid six months. And it looks at me, and that's why I was tempted to do the car pewter, because I'm like, I'll use you. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I've neglected you, little Raspberry Pi. Um, and what that tells us, Joe, is when those are sitting around our tables is that we're just not coming up with enough projects for them. It's our fault, not the Raspberry Pis. Dio.co slash action. DigitalOcean.com. DigitalOcean is simplicity at scale. You can spin up infrastructure in seconds. And they built the entire system with simplicity at the forefront. So managing infrastructure is simple. If you're an expert or a total beginner, you're going to be at home. Dio.co slash action. For a limited time, if you go there, you'll get a $100 credit. Now, it lasts 60 days. You have to have a valid credit card on file, and it's a new account. A couple of caveats, but I wanted to let you know because a $100 credit is a special opportunity over DigitalOcean. Typically, we give out $10 in credit, and that will get you really far. Two months for free on the DigitalOcean platform if you run the $5 a month rig, which is even better than ever because DigitalOcean has recently revised their droplet plans to make them even more competitive. And... They've introduced flexible droplets, which you can mix and match resources depending on what your application actually needs. You need a little more disk or you need a lot more CPU, you can mix and match depending. And I think that's why they're introducing the $100 credit, because they really want to give you an opportunity to play with this stuff. do.co slash action to get that. Everything is SSD based. Eight data centers around the world. A dashboard that is so straightforward and easy to use, you'll be spinning up things for fun. And if you get stuck in one of their pre-built systems, which they have many doesn't fit your need, they have over 1,800 tutorials that have been professionally edited and composed. It's a fantastic resource. do.co slash action. It's DigitalOcean infrastructure in less than 55 seconds. do.co slash action. So it's been quite a bad couple of weeks for Bitcoin, hasn't it? And one story that jumped out at me was a city in New York State, Plattsburgh, has banned Bitcoin mining. Well, that's the headline, but it's new Bitcoin miners aren't allowed to set up shop there at least for 18 months because they've got pretty cheap power there, but they've only got a limited supply of that from a hydro dam. They've put an 18-month ban on any new Bitcoin miners. I guess it's been blowing up over there because, like Joe said, cheap power. And the problem is when they exceed what they can generate themselves, they have to go out on the market and buy the power. And that raises the rates for all of the utility subscribers, sometimes by quite a bit. Obviously, that needs to change. The average consumer shouldn't be penalized from the Bitcoin miners using all the power. They should just be paying more. And I have a suspicion that's what they're going to be working out over the next 18 months is how they're going to pay more for this stuff. It's the exact opposite of what's happening here in Washington. In one small town in my home state, Washington, it's called Wenatchee, they also have really low-cost power because, again, hydroelectricity, and they have cool temperatures, and that makes for a great combination to mine Bitcoin. And Wenatchee has seen what they're calling a gold rush, only in this case, the local businesses are sort of capitalizing on it. They're creating um, stores for these businesses that have now employees that mine Bitcoin. They sell goods in Bitcoin. It's sort of an interesting little micro Bitcoin experiment that's happening right here in my home state. It sounds like they might use this 18 months to implement some sort of license scheme or something, which is 
more regulation, which will probably drive the price yet further down. Because I can see if they implement it in this one town, then it could end up being implemented in other towns in the US. Because it is a huge power draw, and that is something that has to be addressed. I suspect that these mining operations, these large-scale data center-sized mining operations, would be more than happy to pay for their fair share of the power usage. At least here in Washington, over in Wenatchee, they are producing 50 bitcoins per day on average. At least this is back in July when the story ran. That's something that tells me they've got the overhead, even when Bitcoin's around $7,000 or $5,000. If they're getting 50 per day, they have the overhead to pay for that power. Yeah, but it's not necessarily just about paying for it, is it? And it's not even just Bitcoin mining and other cryptocurrencies. It's We're moving into a world where we're using fewer fossil fuels and more stuff is going electric, like vehicles, for example. And the infrastructure required for that isn't really there at the moment. You can't just expect to suddenly add a load of more demand and expect the infrastructure to be there to deal with it. And if we're going to have a future where there's a lot more of these cryptocurrencies and it becomes a standard thing, then that's yet another demand on the electrical system that they're going to have to deal with somehow. I don't really tend to get too concerned about the power concerns because I don't feel like we have enough perspective. What is the Bitcoin power draw versus the power draw of air conditioners, for example? And there's also stories that have run recently, surprisingly, like, for example, this one over at Vox.com on February 27th that says, this Tennessee Valley electricity utility is freaking out because demand has been flat for years. And they quote several utilities in the United States that actually say they have more supply than they have power demand. I wouldn't have thought that was the case either. That contradicts everything I've heard. But uh, it's, it's, it's a really well-cited article by Vox that talks about how a lot of these private utility companies are losing money right now because there's simply not enough demand for the power that they have, for the inventory. So I don't feel like we have a big enough perspective on how Bitcoin power cons- consumption really compares to other things like air conditioners or Tesla charging it's, or even just running the dryer all day doing a large load of laundry. These are big numbers, but I don't really know how they compare. Yeah, and if the price keeps going down, then it's going to be a moot point anyway because everyone will stop mining eventually (laughs) once it gets slow enough. Fair enough. That probably will just solve it right there. It's a Mm self-correcting problem, Joe. Well, speaking of solving problems, Let's Encrypt solves the problem of HTTPS being everywhere. And they've taken another big step this week towards that by rolling out wildcard certificates. Very excited about wildcard certificates. It's something that Jupiter Broadcasting has been waiting for specifically, but not just wildcard certificates. They've also rolled out Acme version 2. Now, Acme is the Automated Certificate Management Environment Protocol, and it's an interface that can be used by a variety of client software packages, read open source packages in your repo, to automate verification of certificate requests. This is pretty great, because not only do we get the wildcard support, which, again, personally excited about, but with Acme version 2, it's an IETF standard, and it's had a lot of input by the industry, and it's got a draft in front of the Internet Engineering Task Force standard body right now. So it may not be in its final form, but it's going to be something that Let's Encrypt has helped push forward for the entire industry to use, and I have a sense there'll be a lot of open-source software written around Acme to automate a lot of this stuff for us. And it really has worked, doesn't it? Their mission to make everything HTTPS, because even on cheap cPanel hosting sites now, they have no excuse not to offer 
uh, let's encrypt certificate and that's usually one click i did one this week actually for a, a little site that i take care of and it just goes to show that it has worked they set out to make everything https and now okay not quite everything yet but we are certainly getting there and now with this wildcard thing it's just going to make it that little bit easier for people and that's got to be a good thing hasn't it the more https the better 100%. Not only is it about SSL, but more than that, it's about identity verification. And that's why HTTPS matters. We have some additional details and some caveats about using Let's Encrypt's wildcard SSL certificates in episode 359 of TechSnap. TechSnap.systems slash 359. Additional details and some caveats in that episode about this. But all in all, I am really positive about Let's Encrypt doing this. This momentum, like you've mentioned, Joe, going in this direction is is really positive for the web. It's really positive for identity verification and e-commerce. Yeah. So what about uninterruptible power supplies? We don't have an open hardware, one of those yet, but maybe we will quite soon. Yeah, as Eric Raymond put it, yes, ESR, they're ready for disruption. And after reading his rationale, he is so right. And they've started a project. He and a group have started a project called Upside. It's currently defining requirements and developing a specification for a high-quality UPS that can be built from off-the-shelf parts in any reasonably well-equipped makerspace or home electronics shop. I have a little bit of background in the solar and inverter industry. I had a client that is pretty famous in the inverter and solar industry, and they built all of their own UPSs. They're in shop. And we had pretty significant runtime. I'm talking like 18-hour runtime off the batteries they built. And they would use their inverter controllers to really monitor the health of the batteries, the, the charge that they were taking, how much they were putting out when we were using them, how long they were going to last. And it was superior to any commercial solution at the time. And they built them on their own. So when I saw this, it really clicked for me. I didn't realize that the off-the-shelf ones were so bad, but from reading what he has to say about them... They're really just the absolute bare minimum, aren't they? They just make them as cheap as possible. And so you can see why he wants to start this new project to uh, have an open standard for them. Yeah, there's all kinds in the industry. And the more expensive you go, sometimes the fancier you get. But again, he's going for something that anybody could get. And some of the requirements they have, I really agree with. Smart charging, which... The circuitry built in will be more than just a constant trickle. It needs to be aware of the battery's charge so it doesn't degrade it. The batteries should be more sophisticated than lead acid, maybe lithium ion or something like that. The open source UPS should be able to deliver 300 watts for 15 minutes as a bare minimum. And the UPS should fail into a bypass mode. That means the power remains active rather than off, which a lot of UPSs just fail to, which brings down your system, which is the exact opposite of why you have a UPS on it. Yeah, that's terrible. I can't believe that any of them would fail to an off position. Surely that's just the, the first thing that you would build into it, that it would fail on rather than off. My assumption would be that you are trying to avoid damaging the equipment by under-delivering voltage. I suppose that makes sense. But it's getting a main supply into it, so surely there's a way to just bypass all the innards of it. Yeah, exactly. And like ESR points out, if you combine that with actual data over the USB bus, like output voltage, discharge current, the temperature of the battery, you can start to predict behavior of the battery and essentially get a smart battery. And when you use that data, you can avoid things like random-ass battery failure that's totally unpredicted. Yeah, well, I'd quite like to build one of these once the standard is published. So yeah, looking forward to that. 
Yeah, we'll have a link in the show notes if you'd like to check it out. Go to linuxactionnews.com slash 45. Okay, so let's end on a Runs Linux. And this week, Will Wheaton runs Linux. What? <laughs> this is one of those beautiful blog rants where he takes to the web and says, my Windows machine, which began running Windows 10 pretty great, he thought it was a decent OS, after a while began to run so slow, he thought somebody would put a 386 in there. <laughs> <laughs> and so he installed Debian, which is quite a strange choice for someone who's not that experienced. I think he got there because he started with system testing tools to try to do troubleshooting on his hardware to find if something is wrong, and then everything just worked under Linux, and so he just took it a step further, loaded it up, and he says, after 17 minutes of trying to install Linux, I had my system booted, and I was using a desktop that just worked the way I expected. I ran into a couple of idiosyncrasies that I'm not crazy about, he says. Mild frustrations, things like Twitter is painfully slow in my web browser and I can't watch Netflix or Hulu because of stupid DRM. And I think he's using Chromium. Perhaps he should uh, get a snap of Google. Oh, wait, Google. But it's cool to see someone high profile like that using Linux and blogging about it. It's got to be good for the whole um, community, isn't it? Yeah, it'll be an exciting journey to watch. And I bet he'll have no shortage of people reaching out, recommending ways to get Netflix working. Yeah, yeah. Uh, install Windows, probably. <laughs> <laughs> he also said he tried an iMac, and that uh, he wasn't too impressed with either. But you know, Joe, everybody eventually comes around to Linux. You can't avoid it. It's that slow, eventual takeover. Well, I'm sure we'll be keeping an eye on developments as Will continues his Linux journey and, of course, with everything else that's going on. And if you want to join us, you can go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes and linuxactionnews.com slash contact for all the ways to get in touch. You can support the whole network at the Patreon page, patreon.com slash jupitersignal. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Ressington. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next week. See you later.